Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. On this week's episode, we're featuring a Q&A with rock legend Iggy Pop and director Jim Jarmusch, whose documentary, Give Me Danger, offers an intimate portrait of Pop's influential career. After that, we'll go to our press conference from the New York Film Festival premiere of Things to Come, the new film from French director Mia Hansen-Lowe, starring Isabelle Huppert. Both films are now playing in select theaters. We weren't like the other bands. A feeling come over you with this great sound that we're making. And sometimes I would just hammer on my guitar. Iggy Pop emerged from Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the midst of the countercultural revolution of the 1960s. His band, The Stooges, blended rock, blues, R&B, and free jazz to produce an aggressive and powerful sound that inspired the punk and alternative rock movements that followed. With Gimme Danger, iconic director Jim Jarmusch gives context to the rise of what he calls the greatest rock band of all time. On opening night of the film's run here at the Film Society, both Jarmusch and Pop joined us for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. All right. I'll just start with a basic question, um, Jim Jarmusch. Why did you feel the need to make this film now? Well, we didn't make it now. We started it like eight years ago. Okay. And uh, I started it because I was talking with Jim Osterberg, and uh, he kn- we've known each other a long time. He knew I loved the Stooges, and he knew a lot of things were going to be coming out over the next years about him, his life, Uh, his work, and he said, you know, if somebody were to make a Stooges film, I wish it would be you. And so we we pretty much started immediately, like, yes, we're going to make this film. And um, what sort of, uh, you know, a lot of this film is archival footage um, or things sort of found from other places because there really isn't, you know, this was... Obviously, this is back in the past before everyone had a camera on them. So there's certain, you know, performances, let's say, or there's a limited number of photos of the Stooges performing. So to sort of fill in those gaps, you used a lot of, you know, found footage old from wherever. What was sort of the criteria for that footage? Um, Just to, you know, I love I love collage as a form throughout the whole 20th century and um, mostly, you know, not cinematically necessarily but uh so it's kind of a collage thing because we had a lot of uh different textures of materials uh from you know different formats and also uh just to illustrate you know we had two fantastic editors uh Afonso Gonsalves and Adam Kernitz that edited this film and we just there were things we wanted to just illustrate and of course, there's not footage of these things. And also to keep it very playful in the, we wanted the film to sort of have the feel of the, the Stooges, you know? So it's funny, it's playful, it's wild, it's messy, it's a little rough, it's a sometimes sophisticated, sometimes primitive. So kind of stylistically, we just kind of wanted to follow those cues, I guess. And I guess keeping that a reverence or, you know, 
sort of t you know telling this story but not being you know totally serious about it all the time. Um, how did you, you know, doing these interviews, some of them are, again, older, some of them are new. Um, how did you, I guess, establish that sense of trust with, you know, the remaining members or just limit, I guess, limit to actual people who were involved as opposed to sort of going to experts or... Um, yeah, well, it's a, it's a celebration of the Stooges, you know? It's not uh, Iggy Pop's whole life that would take 15-hour film or something. Um, and it is a celebration of the Stooges, so it's not a critical analysis of them. I didn't want music critics or other musicians, really. Uh, I, I didn't want... I just wanted it kind of intimate the Stooges themselves, the real family of the Stooges, which included Danny Fields and, and Kathy Ashton. So I just wanted to keep it to, to them. And, you know, it isn't, a, uh, it isn't a groundbreaking piece of cinema, you know. It's intended to be a celebration of an incredible gift to music and to the world. And that's how I feel about it. I've said, I think of it as a kind of love letter to the Stooges. Um, and Iggy, uh, so is it, is it difficult to be asked about this, this sort of same period of your life over and over again, especially considering like, you know, you were smoking pot, you were drinking a lot, you were doing different drugs. Is it, do you have to sort of like do a little research and be like, well, what actually did happen? Revisit all the interviews. You mean is it is it hard talking about all this stuff? Yes. The, all the time is really a drag, except for when I spoke to him. Okay. That was the hundred eighty degree difference. Um, I wanted to be able to tell it to somebody who could understand it and also do something with it. Uh, I didn't know I felt that way until uh, the process had finished and it just occurred to me the other day, I had, well, I had something I wanted to get out there, you know. And um, were there any sort of, were there any anecdotes or stories that, you know, you saw in the film, you know, that didn't make it to the final cut that you wished had made it or <laughs> no? No, 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 <laughs> no. There was maybe a, no, no. <laughs> There's a, 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 there could have been such things, but by serendipity, there's a book. Um, it's archival in its approach on the on the group that's coming out just about now, and it's got stuff like how messy my room was, that I'm so proud of that, you know, and just things like if you were a kid and you could make a really big mess, and now I can't, you know, I've got OCD like everybody else, and <laughs> I, I get up in the morning, put everything in order, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, boy, not then, I, I love those pictures of your room. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah, it's a cool book called Total Chaos, that's uh, Third Man uh, Records book division is coming out with in a few days, I guess. You know, it's funny the, what Jim said about the name of the group, too, and following that, and I never, I've, 
I've been talking about the film with him for the last couple of weeks, and I'd never really thought about it, how influenced I was. It was Ron Ashton, who it was his idea. Basically, we'd been up all night taking LSD. And the guys just wanted to have fun and take LSD, but I was like, we gotta get something done here. Let's think of a name for the group. So I was the kind of, the diligent drag. And it was Ron who said, well, we'll just call it the Stooges, man. You know, and we'll be the psychedelic Stooges <laughs> because we're all high. And uh, by, by coming up with that name, he freed me later to do a whole lot of things. What if the group had been called like the, the Suave Dudes or something? <laughs> you know, you can't go out and do that stuff if you're in the Suave Dudes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah so. well, we talked with the, the editors and Carter Logan, the producer, we were talking about this a few years ago that really great rock and roll has to have what we call a stupid factor in it, you know? And that's not a negative thing. It, no. it needs that. When it doesn't, and I, I sh probably shouldn't say this again, but when it's too earnest, it's, it becomes you too. You right. know? I was actually going to say. There's nothing stupid about them. But, you know, David Bowie knew this. The Ramones knew this. You know, all great rock and roll has to have, it has sometimes something stupid. And the Stooges had a lot of stupid. Yeah, a lot of that. No, I, I mean, that's why I asked earlier about, you know, sort of limiting it, limit, limiting it to, you know, people who were directly involved with the group as opposed to, you know, having Bono in, like, his wraparound sunglasses be like, I almost crashed my car when I first heard this band. But anyway, and, and hearing we're how laying, We're really laying it on poor uh, Bono now. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Bono. Um, I'm sure he's listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he minds. <laughs> Um, so I guess, you know, you're, I feel like this is, you know, like you said, this is sort of, um, you know, a love letter to the band and, um, I guess who is this, who is the ideal audience? Is it, is it people who are just discovering the Stooges for the first time or is it people who are, you know, dedicated fans who know these songs backwards and forwards? I, I don't know. Um, yeah. I honestly, every film I've ever made, those of us making the film have considered it a film we would like to see, and we do not think about demographics, you know? It's like uh, the Bill Hicks, the great comedian, had the routine about, oh, I see what they're going for. They're going for that anti-marketing market, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of, we're going for the anti-marketing market. And I really don't know. I, anyone who might love the Stooges, who does love the Stooges, um, the film was shown a few weeks ago at the Woodstock Film Festival, and they have several venues. One's in Woodstock, one's in Saugerties, one's in a little a town called Rosendale that I, I like. So Carter, I made Carter, <laughs> Carter went to the Woodstock one where it was a lot of hip audience, you know, and I went to the Rosendale one, and seriously, some of the people were like uh, pumpkin farmers and stuff. And they all stayed for the Q&A, and they were really interested in it. And I'm just wondering, there are probably some pumpkin farmers in Rosendale now rocking to the Stooges. So, yeah, I don't know. It's for whoever might be interested. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, now I know there's, there's some record labels sort of doing reissues of, you know, 
rock music from around this time from Michigan or you know specific, specifically from Detroit. Um, have either of you spent time with that music or sort of familiarized? Like I know Numero Group has done some re-releases of you know sort of that garage sound from that era, or not really. What's the question? Like, re, uh, re sorry. Sh shit. You know, <laughs> like uh, I spaced they, out. I. So uh, gar current garage rock? No, or no, no. Old like from from stuff? the from the from that era, like from the late sixties. That um, well, I have all my Lenny K nuggets on vinyl. I still refer to all, that's all incredible stuff. I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, great stuff from that. Okay. Well, there is like a blow me by Fruit of the Loom. <laughs> yeah, we were in Detroit. Wow, only three days ago, and. And Jim uh, Iggy was trying to remember a band that did a song called Blow Me back in the late 60s. And then so in the Detroit audience were like, oh, yeah, Fruit of the Loom. Like, they knew they right away. Me, I only saw them once, you know. Like, Who are these guys? <laughs> it went, blow me, blow me, blow me, blow me, blow me. That I mean, was the Yeah, and you said they wore yeah, like seersucker suits and looked like, yeah, they like wore, a young David Byrne or something. Yeah, they were very like like early talking heads, but twenty years, you know, for well, ten world. years before. Yeah. Interesting. Well that's Detroit for you, you yeah. know. <laughs> um I'll turn it over to the audience. Does anyone have any questions? In the front, go ahead. What's the craziest oh, well, band that opened for you in the early days? It wasn't Fruit of the Loom. We, yeah, I'm trying to think who, if anybody did open for us or not. <laughs> right, right. I'm trying to think who was. Uh, I mean, you're pretty much looking at it here. <laughs> you know, I can't. Uh, can't really. Who? Alice Cooper. Nothing crazy about that. Is there, a, is there a band now that uh, really taps into what you guys were trying to do back in the day that you listened to? Um, I, I, feel, uh, I feel a kindred spirits with um, a group called Death Grips from Northern California. And uh, there's a duo in England, two guys just from where the... Where did these, they're, they're from Nottingham, called uh, Sleaford Mods. So I would say those two, but it, the spirit of the thing extends to uh, Girlpool. If you know of Girlpool, they're just two little girls who don't try to push it too hard, but the, the songs all say something and they have a, they're beautifully constructed and they're different and it's their thing, you know. So there are a lot of good people out there right now, more than ever. Peaches. Were you a little Richard fan? Is she talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, occupational, sorry. No, it's fine. Were you a little Richard fan? Yeah, I was a big little Richard fan. Really, really big, and uh, I wanted, I can't shred like Little Richard, but there's a song called Shake Appeal on Raw Power, which is my attempt to hit that spirit. And I used to think a lot about, there's a street 
in the bad part of Ann Arbor that goes by the Greyhound bus station. You know, the Greyhound bus station's always, ooh, you know, and, and they, had, they used to have a horrible diner in there. And I would play Little Richard records and drive around there after, and I would think about him. Apparently, he worked as a dishwasher for a while, and I thought, God, he could be right in that bus station, and I don't want to go there. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to be a dishwasher, but it was going to be sink or swim. You know, but it, there's something about all that. You know, but yes, he was huge for me. Bruce Lee was a dishwasher in Bruce Seattle. Bruce Lee was in like 1959. Was, yeah. Did he wash he was the a dishwasher too? in Seattle? Yeah. Sure, he would have. Yeah. Is, <laughs> well, I mean, that's what you have to do sometimes. Do you think that's where he got his philosophy about the water? Where he's like, you have to be like the water. Mm. A great Bruce Lee quote. That you have to be like water? Yeah, because water is you right. know, formless. No. Yeah, no. powerful. Anyway. Cool. <laughs> Maybe. So what did you study in college? And then can she give you some letters that she wrote you? When we, we went to college together? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Sorry. What did you study in college ah. for that one semester? Okay. Uh, the, the best course was Social Anth 101. And I had a book about all these things that, you know, so the tribe in New Guinea gets together. And I thought, well, this is just like a gig, you know? this. I, I really did. I saw parallels. I liked that, but I also had something called Asian Studies, and that was beautiful. But it was one of those problems. The problem with that course, as it was taught in my curriculum, was, it was there was a huge old wooden lecture hall. It was cavernous. And the teacher was kind of mumbling like this, and if you don't get it, stupid kids, fuck off. You know, it's, if you, it was, they didn't transmit the knowledge so well, but the books were great. And at the U of M, where I went, they had a, they had a converted frame house that had been donated right on campus, and they called that the Kelsey Museum of Egyptology, and they did have... You know, they had mummies and they had sarcophagus, you know, sarcophagi, whatever. <laughs> and, and all sorts of great stuff. And they had a place called Fisher Hall where they had some really beautiful uh, Japanese uh, tapestries, that sort of thing. And uh, there, was a, there was a lot of wonderful information on that uh, campus. And I saved my undergrad library card and after I dropped out, I still went to the library and I would take a notepad and, and that was where it really wasn't Yule Brenner. <laughs> they gave me the idea to go. Jim took a little. <laughs> Jim had, knew it was listen, that's a very entertaining part of the film. <laughs> but I, I was actually looking at, you know, books and I, and I was just struck. I, they never see the pharaoh with a shirt on. It's amazing. So, those were the two I enjoyed. I had Spanish, and uh, that didn't ring a bell with me at that time in my life. And I, I, the, whatever else I had, I can't remember. So this is a diet question, diet question, exercise uh, question. Uh, yeah. How do you keep in shape? Uh, when I can, swim a little bit. Uh, in the ocean, if I can, 
And uh, I do something called Qigong. That's my main discipline. By, uh, by the late 80s, I was shot. And uh, I came home from a tour. I couldn't walk across the room. Uh, I had a lot of cartilage loss in key joints. And, uh, you know, the doctors give you meds, but that doesn't really, that'll kind of help you out, but doesn't really cut it. I met a wonderful man uh, in Soho named Don An, A-H-N, and he ran something called An Tai Chi. And he was one of these guys, he was a right little bastard, you know? <laughs> he was like, people expect me to be a spiritual, I'm not a spiritual guy at all. I like Led Zeppelin, you know? <laughs> I date my students, you know. <laughs> he was a tough little bastard. I love him. He's, he's upstate now, I believe. But uh, I learned the Qigong from him. I learned uh, it's a basic set of exercises. Jim does it too. We don't do it together. <laughs> he happens to, it's, it's a basic set of exercises. It was developed by Taoist monks many years ago. And... Uh, you, you do certain movements that imitate animals, and you try to breathe as hard as you can way, way down into the bottom of your diaphragm, and that's the main thing that helps me in life. And if, if I'm fortunate enough to not work and tour and all that sort of thing, then, then I'm in Miami cooling it and just doing things like, uh, I like to go to bed when it gets dark. And I like to get up when it's light, you know, like I'm a real square and uh, that helps. And then I go out and rock and roll and stuff and you get, you kind of get shot. So that's it. Low carb. What? Do you do low carb? Not, not as, I don't go like, hmm, you know. <laughs> okay. uh, tonight I'm going to have a filet steak, lobster thermidor. And uh, I'm planning to have an entire bottle of Chateau Pichon Longville. Nice, you Do a meal sunk. And I'm going to have butter on my bread, too. Oh, man. Go ahead. First of all, you will eventually give you an honorary doctorate. You're going to, you'd like to give me one, or? The, the University of Michigan should give you an honorary Would doctorate. like to or should? They should. Well, I agree. <laughs> they, keep, they keep sort of offering me these chump invitations, and I'm holding out for the... question is, how was South America? How was South America? It was wonderful. Or just... Uh, I was there for two weeks and played Bogota, Lima, Santiago, Montevideo, and... Buenos Aires, and um, the the people, the the life there is a little harsher than our life, economically and physically. And people don't have the cushy things that all of us, including myself, have gotten gotten to take for granted. Even even the power grids don't light up the cities anywhere near as bright as uh, New York City. It's not the same. But they have a lot of 
they have spirit. You 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 can be, drive down the street in uh, Bogota, and you'll see a good juggler, you know, and uh, you can give them a dollar, or uh, you know, a good clown, uh, things like that that are kind of getting lost here, you know. So uh, a lot of spirit, um, more modest surroundings, and each each country has a certain they have certain racial boundaries there's you know there's the criollo people the whiter people and then there are the people with a little more indigenous and then there are people of uh, african descent too and they all have to figure out a way to get along that's what i notice about it do you still go to rock shows? And what was the... To rock shows. Oh. Like, yeah. And then, uh, if so, what is the last one you went to that you enjoyed? Well, Sleaford Mods. Yeah. Sleaford Mods and... Um, who before them? Uh, Jacuzzi Boys. I like the Jacuzzi Boys very much from Miami. In the back, all the way in the back. Uh, that one I heard. <laughs> you said, whose idea were the sleigh bells on I Want to Be Your yes, Dog? Yes. My idea. <laughs> All right. I, was a, I was a percussionist in, the, um, in, in junior high and high school in the orchestra. I can read music for time value, but very little for note value. And so I knew about sleigh bells. And... Uh, I also liked uh, Pharaoh Sanders, the great jazz musician, is really good with sleigh bells and uh, gongs and percussion instruments. So I had the idea, thought that would sound great there and expand the, uh, expand the soul of the song. That was the idea. All right. We have time for one more right here. Go ahead. Um, when I was probably 16, uh, when the, I was 16 when the first Stooges album came out. I lived in Akron, and uh, a suburb of Akron, Ohio, and that's the first, first time I heard the Stooges. Uh, uh, an older brother of a friend had uh, the first Stooges album. He had a Mothers of Inventions, uh, Invention album. He had... Uh, what else did he have? He had uh, a Coltrane record. So these were all pretty unusual things for like high school kids at that time in Akron. So we got exposed. Never looked back after that. Well, on that note, thank you both for coming. This is excellent. Thanks, Violet. And thank you all for coming. Thanks, Thanks for coming to the movie. Things to Come tells the story of Natalie, played by Isabel Uppert, a high school philosophy teacher who's forced to reinvent her life after her husband announces he is leaving her for another woman. The film screened in the main slate of the 54th New York Film Festival last October, and both director Mia Hansen-Love and Isabel Uppert joined us for a press conference before the NYFF premiere. Let's go to that now.
Mia, when you were writing this film, did you have Isabelle in mind when you were writing the part? Yes, yes. definitely from the start. And it, it was actually the first time that I um, wrote a film having somebody in mind. Yeah. It was a very new way of writing for me. It's not something that I decided, though. It's not that I, I thought, oh, I, I, I mean, of course, making it, the idea of making a film with Isabelle was dream for me, but it's not something that I could decide I wanted. It really depended on my inspiration, and uh, that's not uh, something I can have any control on. But since, since the very beginning, it was obvious for me that if there was one person that I could imagine in that part, that would be Isabelle, uh, not only because of how much I admire her, but also because of her... Um, um, authority, uh, I mean also intellectually, um, that I, uh, something that I thought was pretty uh, unique and that made it credible for me that she could be a philosophy teacher. Mm. <laughs> was that an adjustment for you to, to be a philosophy teacher? To be a philosophy teacher? teacher? <laughs> it certainly was, yes. <laughs> yes, um, but you know, fiction is so strong that no matter what you are, it makes, well, it makes people believe that, you know, you couldn't be a philosophy teacher, for example. Plus, the philosophy in the film is shown in such a concrete and uh, in such a concrete way. It's not something intellectual in the sense that abstract or something that would take the audience away from the understanding of what she means. Everything is related to an emotional level, and uh, so it makes philosophy exactly what it is. In fact, you know, something very concrete, something as a, as something that can, that uh, you can really use on, on the path of your life, and uh, and whatever quotes uh, I come up with in the film, uh, written by by Mia and chosen by Mia, whether it is Rousseau or you know, it, it's very telling. It's not something you know that keeps you away from it. So. It was even more easy for me to make it believable, actually. Had you wanted to work with Mia Isabel based on her her previous work? Well, yes, I always thought she she you know for me Mia is is uh, she's very young and she's uh, and also I've worked with her as uh, when she, she was my daughter in Dest Sentimental Destinies by Olivia Sayas years ago, and uh, now in a way she's a bit my mother you know because she's my director, <laughs> so <laughs> that's how things go by, and uh, but she has this. Um, I don't know. Uh, for me, she has the, the the wisdom and the knowledge, something that of of like a like a child almost, you know. That's something that she knows. She knows. I don't know how mm -hmm. to express it. Mm -hmm. That's the effect she has on me, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, she knows what it is what it is to be a great director, and she well, she's done movies before, but it's a, it's almost like she was, you know, um, something comes across her, and. Um, she knows exactly the power of the movement, the power of the, I mean, the, the, the veracity of the movement, you know, and that's exactly what mise-en-scene is about, you know, mm -hmm. how the movement is, has to be accurate for the actors uh, to express uh, the most accurate feelings as possible, and she, she knows exactly what it is, and she has this amazing intuition on uh, uh, how, uh, uh, you know, uh, keeping the balance between uh, uh, depth and lightness, um, um, and I think that's something really runs all throughout the film. You know, this balance between you know that makes 
the, the, the movie really, well, light and deep at the same time, dark and, and lit up at the same time. Mm. And she knows exactly how to, yes, uh, pull all those threads. Um, hi, how you doing? Uh, my question's for Mia. I've noticed in your films, your, your main characters are constantly on the move. And even if they're stationary, they tend to be always doing something. So I was curious as to uh, if there was a philosophy behind that or if it was just a coincidence. Well, actually, I, I, I noticed that after so many people told me that people were always moving in my film, but I wasn't so much aware of it until people told it to me. Um, I think it's something that maybe started with my second film when I did uh, uh, Father of My Children, a film that was about a producer who has troubles, uh, who is um, um, working crazy and, and um, um, but has a melancholy and at some point commits suicide. And he, he was also moving the whole time. He, it was somebody who I was filming uh, walking fast, like, a lot, and the film was really about movement, and I think I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from filming that character who was constantly moving, and I, was, I enjoyed it, and I think it even in, influenced me uh, in my life. I mean, I, 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 at that point, I started feeling a lot of empathy uh, with characters who are uh, escaping difficulties uh, thanks to movement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, and I think that's part, partly one of the reasons why I enjoy filming these characters uh, while they walk. And in the case of um, Isabelle, she walks rather fast. <laughs> what a swing from the, from the DJ to this film. I just, I just beautiful, generationally. My question has to do with the very last image of the film, with her holding the baby. What is that saying about this independent woman who lives in her head? And at the very end, after all we've learned about her, we are left with her holding a baby in her arms. Um, Question for both of you, I think. Don't you think you can both like hold babies and make films? <laughs> What? She's going to teach him philosophy. Exactly. At a very early age, actually. Um, I, I think it's a very, well, let's say, amb amb ambivalent ending. I think it's both about the difficulty or the impossibility of, of uh, stopping time, the fact that we can't, we have to embrace the movement of time. We, 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 we cannot control that. It's just like how it is. It's about what life is. So yes, she, she becomes a grandmother at the end and she has to love that baby and em embrace that new you know, person. Um, and maybe that's the future in a way. And at the same time, if you listen to the, uh, the song, it's a love song and I think it tells you also that she's still maybe secretly but hoping for somebody new to come in her life and, and and I, I, and I do believe that can happen to her at some point, even if the film doesn't show that. So I, I think it's about that paradox and the fact that you can both uh, um, accept life uh, in its cruelty and, and uh, irreversibility, and at the same time still enjoy it and have hope and, 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 and wait for something or somebody. 
Um, Isabel, does that sound right to you? I also want to ask you, does it sound right that your character lives in your head? I'm, I'm, I wonder. Um, yes and no, yes, of course, yes, she lives in her head, but she's also, um, you know, sensitive to nature, sensitive to beauty, sensitive to... Um, to to she's also she she has also a great sense of irony all throughout the film that well that doesn't mean that she doesn't live in her head but she obviously you know she has this kind of a ironical distance to whatever happens to her most of the time and uh, um, well she says that uh, I have my my intellectual life is um, completely fulfilled and that's a source of joy for me which I completely believe but. Meaning that doesn't mean that she's she lives in an abstract world of just ideas. You know, she's she also relates to something very essential in life, like you know, beauty, sense of nature, and why not a, a baby too? You know, uh, I don't think anything closed in that image at the end. For example, just um, just uh, something very natural, and certainly not something that. Uh, imprisons her into into something melancholic or negative or whatever. It's also it strikes me that that Mia just said the movement of time is something that's really present in all of your films, and that is connected to this question about movement, um, the movement of the characters. Yes, for sure, and and also the fact that I filmed them walking has to do with that. I I, I guess it's been my obsession since the very first film and I and I still hope one day I can make a film that would just be People focused on tables. two days, you know. <laughs> like like in one location in two days it's like my my dream. It would be like the big challenge for me. <laughs> like a film not about passing of time. <laughs> Thank you. Um I just uh there there's a moment in the film that, that struck with me uh very uh it, it it just sort of stuck in the craw and started uh creating thoughts around it. Um, the Isabel's character says, uh, you know, I feel I've become too old for radicality. And I always felt that, you know, what passes for radicality amongst youth is more impetuousness. I think there, there's, that radicality is, is, is not really affected by time. You can always have a perspective that is genuinely radical. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, getting out, doing things, demonstrating, uh, disrupting things is, is, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it gets conflated together, and I was, I was just wondering if, um, uh, as you were writing the film and as you were acting the film, if this was a concept that sort of you were entertaining, exploring, that sort of thing. Um, well, this is maybe a hard question for me to answer in English. I'll do my best, but... Um, I think uh, with that word... I think that word has been used a lot, uh, radicality, and a lot of people want to be radical, I guess everywhere in the world, but in France maybe even more. It's like, who is the most radical, you know, political person or filmmaker? Um, I'm, I'm obsessed with integrity, uh, whether it be uh, moral or aesthetical integrity, but not so much about radicality, just because it seemed to me like a world that kind of lost its meaning recently because it was so much used, uh, which doesn't mean that I'm not interested in that, but I mean, I, mean, I guess there is, there is something like a critic of that idea in the film or that's 
that abuse of that, the, the abuse of that world. So when she says I'm too old for radicality, in my mind doesn't necessarily mean that she is or that, or that I think there is an age for radicality and that radicality is only for the young people. But maybe it means from her more that she has a, uh, um, um, uh, a critical, critical look, look, yeah. look on, 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 the, uh, on the kind of radicality that is more um, obvious, you know, that it's more uh, ostentatoire, uh, that she wants to show itself. Um, and I, I think ostentatious, it, yeah. Ostentatious, yeah. thank you. And I think it kind of reflects also my, my approach of, of, of filmmaking. I never tried to show that I, you know, to make like camera movements or make characters say things in a way that my films would look radical, but it doesn't mean that I'm not very much concerned with issues that actually deal with that. Mm -hmm. But when she, she says that, I think that you can also take it as she was almost saying the other way around. Let's say um, uh, I might be um, even too young for radicality because it's almost like the there is a kind of reverse um, no matter uh, thing uh, like the the young people look almost old and she looks almost younger than mm -hmm. the young people in the sense that radicality is, is to be uh, mm -hmm. what she feels from those young people is that they're already almost a bit closed in their convictions and thoughts and and she's a, a, a lot more open so I think that when she says that you can almost take it ironically and she almost says you young people are older than I am who being older than you I feel younger than you are you know what I mean there is a certain that's how I take it Paul McIsaac. Yes. Um, I wonder if I would be way off base to suggest that films, uh, philosophical and political milieu that we see is about two years ago, and that the radical change that we're experiencing, the, the huge number of immigrants coming into Europe, the, the, the what's just happened in in Britain, what's we're about to have happen to us here, that sort of philosophical, political thinking, that this film really nails where we were just before the moment we're in now. Is that at all close? I, I actually feel the same um, about it, and I'll, that's and I also felt while I was writing the film that I was, I was speaking of a time that was very precise, very specific. And that's why um, I, uh, I paid attention to that and, and showing in which time period exactly the film happened. It's not like in any time, like around today. It's like specifically, at, like, you know, uh, in a year where it's just before these kind of movements that we are now uh, watching uh, grow up, and it and it and it deals with that, yes, in a very yeah, precise way, I think. Uh, I was wondering if we're supposed to take from something that, that you brought something very personal to it. Um, I know your last film certainly reflected personal life, and um, I just wonder how much of your personal life, or both of you, you brought to this film. Mm. How personal is the film to each of you, actually? Well, as far as I am concerned, all the films I do are personal to me. <laughs> so, not this one more than another. 
not it's never personal on an anecdotic level, but as a, not only an emotional level, I would say, but as it just reflects the way I am, the way what I think. I mean, it's me. It's her, but it's me. So it's always very. It's you, you always make a, a personal statement through what you do, matter, no matter what you do. But it might not be the same uh, as. I mean, it doesn't operate at the same level for me. But for me, as an actress, it's always very, very personal. I won't say how much, how, how, but uh, obviously it is. Yes. Well, it's actually pretty much the same for me. Like. Every single thing, film that I do is very personal uh, in all meanings of that word and it feels like it's almost a picture of who I am at that moment, whatever the film is about actually, um, or who I am or how I see uh, the world around me at that moment. Uh, but to be more pragmatic, it's also personal in a way that um, it deals with uh, philosophy teachers, uh, uh, something that both of my parents have been their whole life. So it's 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 portraying that world in a um, in a more direct way than my previous films because it's actually the first time that I was uh, making a film that was dealing with that uh, literally. And you were going back and reacquainting yourself with a lot. Sorry. Of, you were going back and reacquainting, rereading a lot of uh, philosophy. In preparation, uh, reading a lot of philosophy that I don't know. <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm, I, no, um, <laughs> I'm very bad at it. Like I tried, I try. I even studied philosophy. In, in, mm. I mean, I studied German literature, and when I had to choose, like, and write my master, I, mm -hmm. I, I, but I would be really ashamed, I think, to read it again today. I guess I wouldn't, wouldn't even understand what I was. I didn't writing. mean your own thesis. I meant. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I, I read a couple of things, of course, just yeah. get back uh, there. But my, my, my mother actually helped me a lot. When, mm -hmm. it went, when, when I had to write uh, uh, scenes with uh, teaching of philosophy, I would, yeah. I would actually ask her to help me. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I, I would remember quotation that impressed me a lot. Like mm -hmm. I knew there was something Rousseau said, you know. <laughs> but, uh, I would never have found it actually in the book so I, I and, and she would remember what I was meaning because uh, most of the quotations you have in the films I mean the ones of Pascal and Rousseau that they are things that I've been listening a lot as a child or mm -hmm. as a teen from my parents so they're like kind of here in my mind but I just don't know that by heart yep. I wanted to ask about the uh, child the infant the final scenes I thought it was very cute uh, did the baby actually cry on cue and settle in on cue? Because I thought that was fantastic, you know. If the baby really cried? <laughs> I don't know. And Isabel was uh, settling her in on the final scenes. The baby was crying and uh, you settled her in. But I was wondering whether or not that was on cue and whether or not... Uh, you know, you had the baby, or you exchange babies. Well, uh, I'm baby very good with babies, several you know, shots. so they do whatever I want them to do. <laughs> he was a good <laughs> It's my thing. <laughs> yeah. Teaching them some Nietzsche, I think, right there. Yep. I wanted to ask about the, the, one of the final scenes of teaching, and there's a, a very long quote about happiness and seeing happiness in, or find, 
finding happiness in nature or finding it from something external, I think is the gist of the quote, if I'm not mistaken. So I wanted, if, if you would please talk about that, your perspective, why you included that quote, what, why it's important to you, your views of happiness in general, both of you. Well, it's a very important uh, moment for me, but when I uh, wrote the script, I, w I didn't know how important uh, it was until I edited it, and I realized that scene where she quotes uh, Rousseau about how you can sublime, what's that word in English? Sublime. Sublime? Sublime love? Like, Sublimate. Uh, Sublimate. Yeah, that the fact that hope can be enough, hope hope for love and waiting for love can be enough and can make you happy even if you don't really actually live the lo experience the love. Um, so I knew that was very, what, what it says is of course connects us with whatever Natalie goes through but when I edited the film I realized that that's shot because it's only one shot I think, uh, is, is just before the shot when we see her going back to the countryside uh, in the winter where she will leave the cat to her former student. Um, and it's very ironical to me uh, uh, because she's actually, I, I don't know if I, I should say in love, but there is something in the air between them and, and it's become, it becomes more and more obvious at the end even though nothing happens. And can, do we really know if that's okay, whether she's really happy with that not hap ha I mean, it's not happening, it won't happen, it can't happen for many reasons, but it's still there, it's very strong what's going on between them to me. And so there is some kind of contradiction between what she says, the wisdom of that scene and what she's actually going through. But she's not maybe, probably not even aware of that contradiction and that's what I like about it. What I mean is that I like that the film has to have an uh, unconsciousness that's not, not everything is intentional, not everything is self-conscious and, and ha actually happens. And for me, this is a film where there is a lot of uh, unconsciousness in the character and especially in her, just like when she says, you know, this scene where she says, I'm happy with my intellectual life, I don't need, I don't need anything more. I think it's both very true and very sincere and deep and also not true because of course she needs something more, just like every single human being so there is both in the film and 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 in in but in that shot and in the next shot like for me between the two shots there is something that has to do with unconsciousness uh that goes uh, that shows up and I, and I really enjoy that actually um we have to uh wrap it up but i want to thank you all and i want to thank you isabel and mia thank you, thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>